Hello, and welcome to Master the Start, sponsored by GoMahi.com with your host, Bobby Mason. Richard Wilson has worked with the ultra-wealthy, managing family investments and finances as CEO of Centimillionaire Advisors. He is also the founder and head of the Family Office Club, a platform and community for family offices, investors, and entrepreneurs. There are more than 1,700 registered family offices globally with over $1 trillion in assets under management. Richard has spoken at over 225 conferences in 17 countries and has the number one best-selling books on the topics of family offices and capital-raising industries. So tune in and enjoy episode 38 of Master the Start with guest Richard Wilson. All right, Richard, thank you for joining us. Master Start Podcast, we're happy to have you on your show. And I think we'll just jump in if you're ready to go. Yeah, sounds great. All right, so before we even start, who in the world is Richard Wilson? Why why should people care? Why are you so awesome? Sure, well, uh, I don't know about awesome, but I'm very focused, that's for sure. Uh, For 12 years, we've focused on working with the ultra wealthy. People have sold their businesses for... 20, 30, a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, our last three clients that we've been engaging with is a uh, client that sold their business for a billion dollars in tech, uh, a family that sold their manufacturing company for 240 million, and then a hospitality family that owns about 17 hotels. And uh, each are first generation or early second generation. And in all these cases, when you're at the ultra wealthy level, you have more complexity, more opportunities, more people coming at you, more potential for mistakes more cost as a consequence of any mistake you make. You might lose a million dollars, $300,000 for making one mistake or not moving fast enough on a regulatory change or a fine that's due or a a payment due to some regulatory body, et cetera. And so family offices need a lot of support and help. And we've just spent the last 12 years focused on that niche market that, that most people aren't aware even exists really. Yeah, and this is definitely outside of my comfort zone. Anything finance, my other co-founder is definitely the finance guy. So I'm going to ask sure. you some dumb questions, but I think sure, it'll be sure. good for our audience because no one else knows what it is either. So sure. let's start with Centimillionaire Advisors. Okay. What exactly is that? And then off of that, if you could talk about the Family Office Club and what that is. Sure. Yeah. So uh, Centimillionaire Advisors is a investment advisory group where we're looking to serve above everyone else, uh, $100 million plus net worth families. So Centimillionaire is like the word billionaire, except for it means 100 million plus instead of a billion plus. And everyone talks about billionaires, but there's only 3,000 of them. And there's 55,000 centimillionaires out there. So much more common to work with them. They're easier to find. They have less gatekeepers. When you do find them, they're not so famous like Mark Cuban that they have signed agreements with 400 other organizations. So it's more practical to get business done with centimillionaires. And there's a lot of them out there. And so what we help them do is either start a single family office, start an organization to manage their wealth more effectively, or help them hire and build out their family office solution. They might want to fire a private bank or a trust company and get a multifamily office in place and also build out part of a single family office. And uh, we've got a little three-minute whiteboard explainer video on our whole uh, 
you know, basically opinion that the wealth management space is really broken for those that are worth 30 million, 50 million or 100 plus. And we have that at uh, centamillionaires.com is our is our website for that advisory business. And then the Family Office Club is really a platform and a community, both for those that run family offices or private investors who want more deal flow or anyone who is looking to work with family offices. It could be an entrepreneur that's got a blockchain offering or a manufacturing product or a consumer product of some type, and they want to raise capital from family offices. They become a member of the Family Office Club. And they can attend our investor relations workshops and get training on how to work with investors and come to our investor summits, hear from 30 investors in a single day. So we really uh, just put out a lot of content through the Family Office Club and a lot of conferences, 25 conferences a year. And the combination of the two is just trying to make the family office industry more transparent and easy to navigate. Because oftentimes people have never heard of it before or they think of it as a super secretive place where it's very hard to meet the family offices. And uh, it can be challenging to get any momentum in the space. Um, so we provide the educational resources to help people do so. So what exactly for the layman? I'm going to call sure. myself a layman. Yeah. What does a family office look like? Like and a lot of people don't even understand. I mean, we have a few friends that are in that centimillionaire category. But a right. lot of people don't have a good understanding of what their life even looks like and why they even need a family office. Right, right. Um, well, I think there's two parts of the question. One, what does their life look like? And one, what does the solution look like once it's set up? So what their life looks like is very fast moving, nonstop, 24-7 uh, things that need to get handled. So they might have one of my clients has four private jets and five different houses. You know, we have a client, like I mentioned earlier, that has 17 different hotels. Um, you know, many times they'll have multiple transactions closing within a single month, uh, multiple people being onboarded or fired, you know, within a single month, a lot of things under due diligence at a single time. Sometimes they might be dealing with two or three different accounting firms that are helping them with, you know, three or four open IRS audits, as well as getting last year's accounting fixed because some firm couldn't handle the complexities of it. And they've had to replace them and get that caught up. They might have some internal general counsel, but also a high power law firm, but then maybe a specialty law firm for their niche industry, like a manufacturing industry law firm that knows the IP around, you know, metal stamping or something like that. So there's just much more complexity because there's a lot more going on and the volume of things coming through can be very high. Lots of them travel a lot. Uh, one client or potential client group I just met with said that he just hired his second private jet pilot because his first pilot has to sleep sometime. And sometimes he needs to be fly day and night to get to all the meetings uh, in some weeks. So he has to have two pilots so one can rest while the other is flying. And um, but, you know, others, they decide after selling that, hey, maybe their unique ability is negotiating consumer product deals or maybe their unique ability is aggregating office park real estate assets and they don't want to work 24-7 and they get to create whatever new reality they want to live in. So it doesn't have to be pure chaos. The numbers are bigger. There's a lot of important stuff always happening. But if a family decides it to be, they can surround themselves with high quality solution providers and just work three hours a day or never work again if they wanted to. But a lot of these guys, they enjoy it. They want to get to the next level. They're excited about the climb. They're adding value by hiring people and building a good company based on good values and making a mark on their industry. So they enjoy it. It's kind of like their passion and that's why they became ultra wealthy. So that's the first part. That's kind of what it, what it looks like a lot of the time. 
most of these guys are kind of control oriented people. They created their value by being in control of something and growing it, not by getting lucky or inheriting money or winning the lottery. So control is a big part of their reality. And in terms of what the solution looks like, there's two types of family offices. There's a multifamily office, which is essentially like a wealth management firm, but geared to the ultra wealthy. They're going to have 20 clients, 50 clients, maybe more. And but they're going to be serving many different clients with one team, one platform. And that's one type of family office called a multifamily office. The other type is a single family office, whereas if you built up this podcast and someone bought it for $50 million from you, you know, then you might want to have your own team and you say, hey, we're going to invest in other podcasts. It's my niche expertise. Might still use Goldman Sachs or a multifamily office to diversify my money into stocks and bonds and ETFs and commodities and stuff and help play defense for me. But on my offensive side, I want to have my own single family office, my own team of four people, 12 people, whatever. And we're just going to dial it in on podcasts and this one type of real estate I believe in or something. And that's called a single family office because the whole team is just for you. And that way, all the cost is really directed towards where you want to go with it and what you need. And I think that um, whether you have a single family office or a multifamily office or both, that's kind of what it looks like from a, a really high level. Cool. Really cool. How does someone even get into that industry? Like, where did you start? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to get started, uh, but it starts with just understanding how the space works and how in every niche there are a lot of ultra wealthy individuals. There's centimillionaires, there's decamillionaires, they're worth 10, 20, 30 million. So if you just think about it as private investors, it seems less intimidating. So in your space, whether you are selling some type of widget or you run an e-commerce website. There's been people in your space that have had exits. You can find press releases of them. You can find companies that have gone public. You can find companies that are doing 100 million plus in revenue that you see mentioned in the news in your space and see who's on their board. You can see via LinkedIn who runs the Inc. 500 companies that are in the e-commerce area that are related to your company. So you could create your own lead list of 100 people who have had exits in your exact space. So if you're doing something unique with your company, and you have something that's somewhat proven, it isn't just an idea, but it's actually generating revenue and profits, you might be able to partner with one of those people that's in your niche space already or, or was before they sold and then work with them. And then that's kind of a shortcut to getting started because they'll be able to instantly recognize that you're doing something unique and meaningful uh, or not because they already know your space. If you have to introduce someone to who you are, get to know them and teach them your whole industry, then it's a lot harder. If you just go out to random investors and random family offices, a manufacturing family is not going to get what you're doing if you're an e-commerce website uh, in many cases. And vice versa is also true. So that can be kind of a shortcut to finding investors. Gotcha. What I, Now I have to selfishly ask this question sure. because I, I've done investor pitches in the past and uh-huh. failed epically and done okay at some of them. What have you found to be the good trends of people that are pitching and the very bad trends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the good trends is, uh, you know, using text message, using video, video in your pitch deck, video on your website, video in a one pager, um, sending a video via text message, meeting in person, doing a Zoom video call. You know, bad is just an old school audio phone call. And people, especially if you start talking a lot, will just put you on mute and answer a few emails while you go on and on. And they'll just kind of pretend to listen because they're super busy, perhaps. Uh, And then it's always better to meet in person. And 
you know, some bad trends as are. I see people all the time that have a serious company or 15 years experience in commercial real estate, for example, but their materials would just look really bad. Like they don't care at all about their company and they might have no logo, no one pager, just pure junk materials. So, uh, you know, Steve Jobs says that when you package something, it imputes value upon it. So when you package the Apple phone to look premium, they can sell it for more. And people don't realize when you go to raise capital for your startup or your your operating business that the packaging of your communications is imputing value upon it, but it's negative value most of the time. When you have no email signature or you're emailing them from a Gmail, you have no website, no logo, no pitch deck, you know, uh, it just makes it look like you don't take your own company seriously. So why should they? You know, it's like it's an automatic waste of their time if it's not worth your own time to respect your own work. And it's a pretty easy sorting mechanism for families. A lot of people mess that up. And the fastest growing part of our company is a internal design division called pitchdex.com. And uh, we put together pitch deck, one pager, website, logo, one liner, investor targeting, everything in a single package. So you have one source of communication with our team. And we don't just make it look pretty. We know what it's like to attract investors, close them, sign agreements. So making it effective is more important than making it look pretty, but it can't look like a piece of junk or it just looks like you're not taking yourself seriously. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, we, like I told you at the beginning, we focus on mastering the start, right? And these right. are a lot of people that are either just jumping into the business world or they're starting their own company and everyone raves about really raising capital. Like that's, right. that's, that's a cool thing to do. And right. I could be wrong, but I don't necessarily think everyone should be doing that. And I, I know there probably isn't a right answer to this, but when should someone actually look into raising capital? Um, you know, as, as few times as possible, you know, um, for multiple reasons. I think it's kind of a sign of a first-time entrepreneur uh, when they try to raise capital and they only have an idea and they haven't proven it yet. Um, you know, I didn't raise any capital for my company. You know, now we're doing $5 million in revenue and we have 18 employees. Um, if I saw an idea that I could not execute on unless I got a piece of intellectual property first, um, which I actually have an idea I'm working on now that's of that nature, and it would require a, uh, a $1.5 million piece of intellectual property, and I just want to put down maybe two to 300000 and JV with like a big brother partner that has a 40 person team and they would have the operational execution knowledge. So they're a strategic investor. I put up my money, do my part. They put up their money, do their part. And together we can be running and, and JV and have a partnership. You know, that's a case uh, where it's kind of one of the first cases I've ever even considered it. And I live in the capital raising space. You know, we own capitalraising.com, have a book on it, et cetera. So obviously I could be raising capital for my own core company and come up with some valuation of 10 million, 30 million, whatever. But why would I do that if I actually believed that my company is going to do 30 million in revenue instead of five and change, right? So I think the time not to do it is when you have an unproven idea, you haven't done every single possible thing to bootstrap it and get it done before raising capital. Because otherwise, you're just going to get a bad valuation. Or if you can convince some investors to come in and say, and convince them that you do have a $5 million valuation when you really don't have anything developed yet. When you go back and try to raise capital later, if you ever need to, those investors are going to say, oh, okay, well, now you're doing a million in revenue, 100,000 a year profit. Uh, you know, we think you're worth half a million dollars or a million dollars. You know, it's, it might be way below what your, you know, golf club friends and your cousin thought you were worth when it was just an idea. 
You know, like you see that on Shark Tank all the time. People just get destroyed. And they're like, yeah, that's great that your best friend thought you were worth eight million. But welcome to the real world. You know, no one else thinks so. So here's the valuation. Uh, and I think that that's a harsh reality for a lot of people. But from a family office's perspective, they might be buying companies at four times profits that are doing half a million a year in profits. So they might be paying four to five times profits for a company doing a million a year in profit. So when a startup comes to them, and they just want someone else to fund their dream and they think their software mobile app has a $5 million valuation, for example. And meanwhile, they can go buy a consumer product company uh, and they can own 100% of the company at a $5 million valuation. And that company is doing a million a year profit and all you have is an idea and two programmers. You know, uh, it's pretty tough for a family office to swallow. The only exception is if, again, you go to an investor who's in your space then maybe they can be a big brother partner and they can lower your costs, scale you faster, open doors, help you with distribution, advise you, be a board member and inject capital. Then that's a good partnership. That's a good reason to, to raise capital. So, but yeah, I would, I would just avoid it, uh, even though we teach how to do it. And it's in our best interest that everyone kind of try to come to our workshops, join the family office club. Like that's good for our business. But I would just be very careful on when you do it. Otherwise, you're not making good use of those relationships if you're going to them too early. For sure. I want to hop back to some of your clients. And, mm -hmm. you know, you walk around essentially helping family offices avoid enormous mistakes, maybe $300,000, million dollar mistakes. Mm -hmm. What are some examples of those mistakes? And what are kind of the most common financial mistakes you see family offices making? Sure. Uh, well, the most common ones are related to uh, not having a clear strategy and vision after they have a liquidity event. So they'll oftentimes get liquid for the first time in eight or 20 years, for example, and then everyone starts pitching them and they might invest in things that seem most exciting or to people they trust most and they've known for a decade, or they might just start spreading their money all around and they think, oh, well, you know, my wealth manager always diversified myself. So I'll just make a bet over here in cannabis and I'll make a bet here in self-storage and a bet in biotech and these two mobile apps and this other, you know, impact investment. They just spread it all around. And without a clear vision of what their strengths are, how they created their wealth, where they want to go in the future, how much control they need in their investments, what is too risky of an investment versus not, if they really want to do risky investments, what percentage of that portfolio they should be. For most of their investments, what are the 15 uh, criteria that would make it into their strike zone so they can say yes to it? Most families don't have that, and it takes them a year or two to stumble around and figure out at least five to seven of those strike zone checkpoints. And so a lot of families waste a lot of money by spreading their money all over the place in the first year or two, and then they figure out, oh, we shouldn't do that again, we shouldn't do that again, and eventually they develop it when they really should be proactively developing that strike zone right out of the gates. A lot of families buy very overpriced single-family residences right after a liquidity event that have been on the market for a decade. After they buy it, very hard for them to sell it again. They think it's going to be their dream house. They renovate it for a million bucks, and two years later, they're bored of it, and they have five other houses, and they're traveling so much they don't use it much. So that's a huge mistake. And then a lot of families um, make the mistake of just not investing in great tax and estate planning help. So I've got a uh, $100 million plus client that had some estate planning papers drawn up seven or eight years ago, but they never got filed. They weren't sure if the law was going to change. And uh, just now they're getting you know, their house in order uh, now that we've engaged them as a client. 
And it's, it's pretty common for families to ignore that stuff. These are entrepreneurs that are fast moving. They're excited about business. They don't really want to go meet with a bunch of attorneys and hope the attorney's giving them good advice, but they don't really know. And so part of what we do is oversee that process. And we help uh, put processes in place so that whatever estate planning and tax advisors they're using uh, will kind of oversee uh, what's being executed for them and make sure it's reasonable and in line with what we see other clients doing. So they have kind of uh, assurance on some level that it's not you know, way off the map on, in terms of being too simple, too complex, or too expensive, or too uh, basic. Yeah. How do you think those mistakes apply to the average Joe? like average lady and guy that are just just entering the world of business what what should they look out right. for well i mean i think if you want to be growing most people in business want to grow their own wealth and i think one mistake the opposite of the mistake of not planning is having a really great unique plan uh and unique strategy and a unique game that you're playing in the marketplace and so i think that families and business owners need to look at their own strengths what the competition is doing you know, what other uh, investors are doing, if you're on the investor side or what other businesses are doing and see where the gap is in the marketplace and then make sure you're playing a really unique game so that the value you're putting out there has unique attributes that no one else is offering. And then that allows you to accelerate your growth. If you don't have your business up to momentum yet and you're starting 12 different businesses at once, it's the same as a family office investing in 12 different areas. It's going to take you a really long time to move up that learning curve. But if all you're doing is investing in stem cell companies or all you're doing is providing your research service in the area of stem cells or some other type of stem cell marketing agency type service or whatever, uh, then you're going to move up that learning curve much faster. So I think focusing on the unique game that you get the best ROI for every day of energy you put into it is something relatable for family offices as well as business owners. Uh, in both cases, your wealth advisor is not going to make you rich. Their their job is to defend you against market fluctuations, hopefully track the market decently on an upswing and protect you a little bit on a downturn in the market. But their job is not to make you worth $20 million from 200000 You know That's your job. And same with the family office. It's their direct investment capabilities that's going to grow their wealth uh, you know, exponentially, potentially. Yeah, that's... Great answer. Great answer. <laughs> you, you work with the ultra successful pretty commonly. I mean, anyone that's in that that category, they've they've done well. They figured it out. What are some of the commonalities, or like, what are the traits you see very regularly that a lot of us uh, could pick up on? I think one is that they're pretty pretty uh, tight on managing their time, and uh, they don't want to waste time. So if anybody seems not in line with who they like to work with or follows up three times in a day with them, or does something that's just not in line with their level of integrity or expectations of how you treat people, et cetera, then they'll just kind of go dark on them and cut them out and say, well, I just don't have time for that. If so many people pinging them for their time, asking for their checkbook, get on their calendar, et cetera, that anything that's not in line, they just want to cut out completely. They also oftentimes like to book meetings for 15 minutes at a time, not for 30 minutes or an hour. They're always moving very fast. And I think that the most valuable phone calls I have with counterparties or family office clients are usually seven to 12 minutes long. And usually the less valuable phone calls I have are 45 minutes or an hour, uh, sometimes you know 35 minutes, et cetera, because I find that the amount of time that someone has available is highly correlated with how busy their calendar is. And all that is correlated with the number of people that are putting demands on their time, the number of opportunities that are going on. 
And so it's not possible to meet for an hour and a half if you're very, very busy or in very, very high demand by your own team, by other people in the world, et cetera. And uh, one time I had an investor group say, oh, well, we want to fly to Key Biscayne, which is uh, where I live outside Miami. And they say, oh, we want to fly to Key Biscayne and spend a day with you in your offices. And I was like, a day? Like a whole day of my life? Like, what do you want to talk about for a day? You know, I had them write an agenda before they came. And I didn't want to do it because I never, ever do that. But since they were an investor club that had referred a couple investors to us and they let me speak at their event, et cetera, I said, OK, you know, let, let's try this. Let's just plan on a half day and see how it goes. And they came and I just completely regret it because they were just completely unprofessional, uh, you know, not well prepared, wasted time. They just wanted to brainstorm out loud, which is like the most painful thing for someone very busy. So if you're going to get on the phone with someone who is, you know, worth 20 million, 50 million, 100 million plus, don't pain them with your live brainstorming. Do a lot of research, uh, do homework on them. So when you get on the call, you know their background, you can get right to the meat of what you want to offer. And if you need to, you can be done in seven to 10 minutes. And if they want to go longer, you could, but you know, you should treat their time that valuably because otherwise you might not ever get that 10 minutes again with them. You have to be so good at making pitches then. It's seven to 12 minutes. For sure. Or at least in hooking them, you know, it's like uh, you should be able to get your pitch down to a single sentence on what's compelling. And if you can't do that, then you just need to go meditate on it and get that down. Because I think that's how you get the chance to pitch in the first place is you get it down. That's the number one thing besides brand uh, and logo that we help people with at pitchtext.com is getting their one liner down. And we'll look at what's credible about them, what's most unique, most compelling, number of years experience, number of deals done, revenue, number of team members, et cetera. And it'll help them construct that one sentence. And they can use that in voicemails, front page of their pitch deck, use it on their one pager, their website. And then that is what's going to help them get the meeting in the first place. And then they can just go into the room, tell their story real quick, and suggest how they could work together with the counterparty. Hmm. That's super interesting, actually. I think a lot of people would think about i guess individuals in that world 100 million plus and a lot of us would think what's the point of even reaching out you know a lot of us would be just i mean the belief is and i definitely had this belief before i started becoming friends with a few of them i just thought there's no chance why are they going to want to talk to someone like me and what advice would you give to people that are feeling that way And I mean, you have to come to them with value, but what do you even do? Yeah, and I think that is, uh, you know, some people think about going to billionaires, and I think it's a relative waste of time compared to centimillionaires. There's 55,000 centimillionaires, 3,000 billionaires, but there's 211,000 ultra wealthy that are worth 30 million or more. And I don't know the stat for 10 million plus, but if you've never partnered with anyone before, you could just look at companies that have. 20 members or more on the team. It's probably a pretty good sized company. The owner probably has a, a pretty decent size net worth and growing, et cetera. Look at people that have exits in your space and just realize that these are people like you just further down the path and they are looking for exciting opportunities. You might be able to be a joint venture division or take advantage of their infrastructure and their relationships and grow much faster. And if you think about what you're best at and why you started your business, usually you don't have strengths in all the areas you need to succeed. So if you can just look at it as finding a partner that has the balance sheet or the infrastructure to help you, then that makes it a little bit more of a, um, you know, like a partnership approach type feeling. And I guess if it's too intimidating going to someone who's worth 100 million, 
and maybe someone listening to this is worth you know one million or or less or much less, um, they could simply go to people that are worth ten million. You know, go to the people with the 10, 20 person teams and just start there and figure out how to collaborate with them and just be generous and open minded on how to structure the deal. And then I think that's a much easier approach rather than trying to, you know, go to only big family offices or the wealthiest people on planet Earth. I think that is a waste of time uh, to go after billionaires when you've never raised capital before, unless they made their money in the exact niche that you're in. You really have no hope of getting their attention. You know, go after the centimillionaires, smaller family offices, the decamillionaires, et cetera. Your career path is pretty unique. I, I can't imagine you find a lot of people doing the same thing you're doing. <laughs> so I'm, no. I'm kind of curious about your response to this. What advice would you give yourself if you were starting from the beginning again? Uh, well, I wish I would have started on family offices in uh, 2001 instead of 2006 and seven. You know, an extra five-year jump would have been a big advantage. Uh, also, I think more of a focus and accountability while growing the team early on. Early on, I'd hire one person. They'd be helping with operations and doing sales for two or three different things in our company. Once I separated that and figured out the same brain that's doing operations is not going to be excellent at picking up the phone. Uh, like I had one guy who was a great guy for operations, but people would call and leave a voicemail and he wouldn't even call him back because he hated talking on the phone. And, you know, so you need salespeople and to hold people accountable, you need to be able to measure what they're doing every day of KPIs and say, well, if this goes well, it's because you did a great job. If this goes horribly wrong, you're getting warned or you're getting fired and replaced because that's the area you're responsible for. And you can't hold people accountable if they're doing a whole bunch of different stuff. They'll just say, oh, yeah, I got busy with this or, well, I had all these other things going on. So you need like black and white transparency and accountability. And we should have added that earlier. Once we added that, we started growing very quickly. And then just being more niche focused, even though I've been focused on family offices for 12 years, uh, we started out with family office education. Then we got stronger on single family office education. Then we got stronger on how to start a family office type education. And then we got stronger lately on the centimillionaire niche uh, and acquiring centimillionaires.com and putting out the book on that area. But I think that earlier on, if I had started with a little bit more of a, that niche focus from the beginning, I wasn't smart enough to see that yet, but things would have moved faster because it would have been more specific to a specific audience. So if somebody is starting a business or growing one and you're not getting lots of traction, Instead of trying to appeal to five different types of healthcare companies, I would just try to appeal to dentists and dial everything into the dentist or the surgeon or the doctor or whatever. Instead of doing all stem cell related conferences, I would just do like stem cell, you know, IP or stem cell private equity or like some niche within it that you believe in most and you already have traction and you already have a strength or there's the biggest gap in the marketplace. Okay. That's, that's definitely good advice. I'm just trying to, I want to be very respectful of your time here. So before we get into the quick fire questions, the one other thing that I wanted you to talk about was essentially, you know, I listened to you on EO Fire and you talked about how you actually found more clients when you moved to Miami and you said, you know, you have to put yourself in the right place to be successful, essentially. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, uh, in places like Oregon, they pretty much pay you to leave. They say, oh, well, if you're running a business and you're doing well, get the hell out of here. You know, they, they tax you for employing people, essentially. They tax you for making any profit, right? So uh, on top of that, I just like to be outside. I have three kids. You know, I like to be motivated to be outside and be active. And Oregon is just 
rainy and cloudy and if you can avoid seasonal depression you're just you know uh growing larger by the bad weather and i just like exercising outside so for me it was low taxes lots of family offices and great weather is what i was looking for and that narrowed down where i could live pretty quickly but the result of all that was that in six years when i was growing the business in oregon uh, i met five family offices and i was trying to meet them and find them and i could only meet with five in the local area and now here in, in Key Biscayne, where I live in Florida, just at my my four-year-old's backyard barbecue, we had four family offices over just because they were the parents of, you know, my four-year-old's friends from preschool. And I met a centimillionaire at the park, you know, just pushing my kid on the swings. You know, I go to the gym and exercise with a, a single family office guy. Yesterday, I walked over uh, with the little red wagon and my two younger kids, and they played in the grass in the front yard uh, with someone that manages a couple hundred million dollars at a family office that might move to another one. Uh, so I think that, you know, there's just family offices all around me here. And on accident, you bump into them, you meet them without even trying. Where in some places you have to try very hard and you can't meet them. So the thing is that people need to think about how, like when I was in Oregon, I had a $1,500 a month mortgage before I paid it down. And that was with taxes, interest, and the mortgage payment. I paid $1,500 a month for a five-bedroom house in a nice neighborhood. And I moved here. And before we got our house here in Key Biscayne, I was in a three-bedroom condo that was 1,500 square feet instead of 2,500. And I was paying 4,400 a month in rent. So that was a huge change. But the tax savings alone coming to Florida paid for that change. So, you know, Oregon was paying for me to move to a nicer place that had more business going on. And in Oregon, there was no chance ever that that $1,500 a month mortgage was going to give me an ROI. Like it was nothing profitable about doing it business-wise. Where here, uh, I've attracted business and we've been able to grow the business enough by being here that it's like an investment. I'm getting an ROI on the amount that I invest per month in living here, which wasn't even in the equation in Oregon. So if you move from Ohio to I don't know, the financial district of San Francisco or to La Jolla or to Mayfair in London, et cetera. Yeah, your cost might be more, but you have to consider taxation and the upside business-wise and just being in a motivating environment that might make you healthier, get you better connected. You know, it depends on who you are and what your personality is. But for me, it, it really helped on multiple levels uh, moving. Awesome. I'm happy I asked you that. So every guest, we ask them some quick fire questions and you, we usually dive in a little bit really quick, but uh, sure. we always have a random question from our audience for you. Um, random question this week is, how has the road to success impacted your relationships? Sure. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, so basically, I looked around in Oregon and realized that I really didn't have too many ambitious, motivated friends. Uh, on top of not meeting too many family offices, I just found a lot of my friends were you know, in cubicles somewhere working for someone else. And I was like, hey, you know, I've kind of grown out of having a lot in common with some of these people. So even though I still liked being their friend, it's like I needed to be around more motivating people. Um, so that was another reason why I left Oregon. So I think that was a change. And that was uh, hard to leave family, hard to leave friends. But then you get in a more motivating, exciting environment where people are more optimistic and more in line with how you think. It really helps support you. So I think that's been something. And then also I've just found in terms of relationships, if you can find a group to be part of where you find like-minded entrepreneurs at your level or a little bit higher, then it can really help you be around people who kind of speak your language and help you get connected if you move to a new place like London or Singapore, et cetera. Cool. The second one is what skills does a young professional need to have straight out of college to really 
I don't know, really make it, I guess. What have you seen? Sure. Uh, well, I agree with Warren Buffett saying that communication skills are super important. The ability to very closely listen and uh, pay attention to what the market's asking for, customers are asking for, be responsive to that and kind of be able to synthesize market trends, your strengths and what your customers are asking for to identify new products and new solutions. I mean, that's how we came up with um, our investor directory division, our pitchtext.com division, a lot of our different divisions, even sent to millionaire advisors as a result of listening to investors on stage at our own events and people I'm meeting with in person and saying, okay, well, everybody is complaining about this one thing and no one seems to be offering that. Let's not do what everyone else does in wealth management, like stocks and bonds and fund managers and diversifying their wealth to an extreme. We'll allow those 50,000 people to do that or do it all day long. We're going to help with the direct investment portion of their portfolio and helping them set up a single family office because there's almost no one really credible that that's doing that. So I think that um, that ability to communicate, but also analyze a marketplace and choose your bets wisely on filling a gap and not playing the same game that everyone else is and not being lost in the herd uh, of a million people doing the same thing is really, really important to to do. It's probably the most important skill set, I think. When you're constantly listening, are you just kind of storing it in the back of your mind? Or are you guys writing it down? Are you guys just essentially, you're like, well, this is a trend we've heard it a million times. How do you guys actually um, listen? I don't really write it down until it's time to really take action on something specific. But if you're focused on one space, like stem cells or self-storage or whatever, uh, then over time, if you read everything that's out there, like I've bought every book written in my space, and I'm going through and, and reading all of them and posting video reviews on Amazon on them, et cetera. And if you do that and you go to events in your space, you host events and you talk to literally a thousand people in your space, you're going to see the trends and just kind of subconsciously, you're going to be deciphering all of that and kind of figuring out, you know, why. And if you ask yourself, you know, what are the three, three to five trends going on in the space? Or if you have a podcast in the space like you do, and you identify three to five trends that are changing or something that's inevitable in the future. Like, for example, I think it's inevitable that in the future, people will talk about centimillionaires all the time. Right now, no one really has heard that word. That was the same with family offices a decade ago. That's why we bought centimillionaires.com. That's why we're putting out all the information there because it builds on our DNA and our background. It helps fill a gap and it's inevitable that it's going to be part of a greater conversation in the future. And so that's something that we double, triple down on. So whatever you're background and skill set is, you know, just listening for things that are in line with what you could act on and where there's a gap and where there's a rising tide is where if you can align those things, then you might be able to make a mark on the industry. Because if you can get there before everybody else, like Gary Vaynerchuk says, you want to be in the place. So when everyone goes crazy about Beanie Babies, you're like the Beanie Baby blogger, right? And you're like, you've already been doing it for five years, right? If you chase the trend, you're like, oh, yeah, I want to start a a Bitcoin fund. It's like, well, 190 people already did. And, you know, unless you have something super unique or great connections, you're just another me too. You got to find out what the next Bitcoin is and position yourself to be the number three fund or the first fund in the space of a certain type. Awesome. Awesome. I've just said awesome a lot, I realize, when talking to you. <laughs> so I guess I really like the answers. Yeah, no problem. The third quick fire, what do you believe needs to be sacrificed for success? sacrificed. Um, I think anyone that doesn't uh, align with your core values. You know, yesterday we terminated an employee that wasn't aligned with where we were going. Uh, you know, moving out of a place, even if it's a little bit painful, move away from family or friends. If it's not aligned with who you are as a person and what you enjoy and the business that you want to grow, you can't have 
a family office business and be based in, in Portland, Oregon and expect to grow very quickly, right? So I think you have to sacrifice pleasing everyone and you have to sacrifice trying to make everyone happy. Not everyone does belong on your team. Not everyone belongs on your client roster. So I think you have to have like true integrity of uh, an alignment of where you're going and what you expose yourself to people and media, et cetera, and not just be uh, open to everything. And like, you know, if you want to be seen as Mr. Nice Guy to everyone on planet Earth, then you're not going to be making progress because then you'll never fire people. You'll never fire a client. You won't say no to opportunities. You'll just be dissipated all over the place. Cool. The last question, um, we try to give our audience a life hack that they can apply to their life every week. Uh, Sure. What exactly would you say one applicable life hack is that they should apply this week to become better? Uh, My life hack is to make sure that I have my monthly, quarterly, annual goals on a single piece of paper. And then I have uh, visual images of the most important goals. And then I print that out and I put it by my bed where I brush my teeth. I put it in the shower and I put it here next to me at my desk. And then when I have all three of those in place, you don't have to try and like open your iPad to look at your goal list. You can just be walking around and you see it and you can't help but always have them top of mind and be making progress on them them and just mentally registering that you need to be working on it and, uh, you know, making time for it. And that way, just bump into your goals, you know, everywhere you are. Sweet. Do you track your goals then on a very regular basis? I do a, a weekly accountability call for the past decade with one of my friends. So Every Monday, we get on the phone for 15 minutes and say, what's your one thing for the week? Does it match up with your one thing for the year? And then we have, I do a a quarterly goal system, and then we do uh, a daily set of goals, and I have monthly and annual goals as well. And then aligning all those things with the adjustments to what's happening with your business is kind of a balancing act, but I find that helps a lot. Super cool. Well, Richard, thank you for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. Obviously, that's why I said awesome a million times. And uh, we're, we're thankful to have you here. So thank you. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Bobby. Take care. Thanks for listening to Master the Start, sponsored by GoMahi.com. A few quick fire notes before we go. Find the right place to live and friends who motivate you. Listen to your clients' needs and concerns to create new market solutions. Identify three to five changes or trends in your business space and position yourself to be the front runner for that eventuality. And the life hack for the week? Make sure you have your monthly slash quarterly slash annual goals on one single piece of paper. Make visual images of your most important goals and place them all around your space as motivation to see them through.